Happy Easter, everybody. He is risen. I see some old friends I haven't seen in a while. I see new friends. Happy Easter uh, to all. Uh, It is my privilege to bring and open God's Word today and talk about the hope that we have in Jesus. And our text today comes from the Old Testament. Uh, The prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 25, we'll be reading verses 6 through 9. This is Isaiah's vision of a future party on a mountain. People having a great feast because their great enemy, death, has been conquered. This is God's word, his vision. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us, this is the Lord, we have waited for him Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, let us partake of the feast today, for you have risen. It is resurrection day. Let the hope of Easter ring out loud and clear. We give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen. This week, I thought about this interview that I heard years ago. Um, It was a throwback, and I wondered if it was still online, and it was. So I went back and I listened to the interview. The interview is Terry Gross from NPR interviewing Maurice Sendak, the uh, famous children's author. So he wrote, uh, Where the Wild Things Are, if you're familiar with that. You're probably not supposed to read that anymore, but I don't care. It's good. And she's interviewing Maurice, and Maurice at this point is old and feeble, and he can't leave his home. Uh, Maurice is dying. Two of his friends have recently died, and he's talking about how sad he is. Uh, So sad that they've died, and he's outlived every member of his family. At this point, he is all alone, without family or close friends. And the thing about Maurice is that he's a Jewish atheist. So he's culturally Jewish, but he doesn't believe in God. And he's talking to Terry, and he says something that's fascinating. It's what brought me back to the interview. And he said very clearly, I don't believe in an afterlife, but I fully expect to see my brothers again. I don't believe in an afterlife, 
but I fully expect to see my brothers again. I think that's haunting. There's a tension there. A tension within him. And as a Christian person, I think I understand that contradiction and tension. I think I know what's happening. I suspect that's what what's happening in Maurice is that God was at work in him. Because God is at work in everyone. Regardless of what you think about God. If you're here today and you're like, I love Jesus. This is awesome. He is risen indeed. Cool. And if you're here today and you're like, I don't care about this. When's the ham? There's deviled eggs waiting for me at home. Final round of the masters. Quit preaching, white boy. Whatever you think about, whatever you think about God. Whether you like him or dislike him, whether he's irrelevant to you, whether you don't think he exists, or whether you think he's the greatest thing in the world, regardless of what you think about God, God is constantly thinking about you. And he loves you. And he has great mercy and grace for you. And he's at work in your life and in your heart, regardless of your thoughts and emotions about him. That's irrelevant because of his greatness towards you. And so God in his great love for Maurice, of course, put a desire in Maurice's heart, this hope to see his brother again, to prepare his heart to perhaps one day receive a hope not grounded in contradiction, but grounded in something more sure. To perhaps lead his heart to a more grounded hope. Because here's the thing, I am fully convinced that this isn't the end. I'm fully convinced that I will see my grandparents again. My friend, Anne Morse, Charity, I'm convinced that I will see my child, Hannah, who died in the womb for the first time. I am fully convinced that I will see you all again. I'm convinced that this is not the end, and the reason I'm fully convinced isn't based on a contradiction. It isn't based on a pipe dream. It isn't some ungrounded hope. It's, it's the reason we gather today. And it's the reason for Isaiah's vision. This mountaintop feast. And the feast is glorious. The host has spared no expense. This isn't boxed wine or hot dogs from Aldi. This is the best barrels from the cellar. Paired with marbled ribeye steaks that melt in your mouth. This is a victory feast because the war is over. The enemy has been defeated and the enemy is death. In verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah's vision, he talks about God destroying the covering that unfolds all people, the veil that covers all nations. 
It's a vivid portrayal of death. The word veil there, it's the word for grave clothes. The strips of cloth that they would put around a dead body. And so it's vivid. It's saying that every single person, all people everywhere, are living under the shadow of their own grave clothes. They're already, in some ways, dressed for death. Living under its shadow. Our grave cloths already prepared for us. We live under the shroud. You look at the scriptures and death isn't an unpleasant, predictable, natural phenomenon. It is always and everywhere seen in the scriptures as a tragedy. The tragic consequence of humanity turning away from God. That's the first way that death is pictured in the scriptures. As a tragic penalty for our sin. But that doesn't exhaust what the Bible says about death. Scripture also talks about death not only as a penalty but as a power. A powerful enemy. Our last enemy. A villain and a thief. It often personifies death as an all-devouring foe, as like an evil mega Pac-Man with a ravenous appetite. In the Psalms and Proverbs, the grave is portrayed with its mouth wide open, greedily licking up life, swallowing up everything that it encounters. And so in Proverbs it says, Proverbs 30, 15 and 16 declares that just as the leech has two daughters who constantly cry, give, so death is never content, it never cries enough. Death casts a shadow over everything we do, everything we have, and everyone we love. And all of this is felt by us as something sinister. Death is so alien to what God intended for us. There's nothing more human than to want to last. To long for joy, relationship, love that lasts. That's what we sense in our souls. That we were made to last. That's what Maurice sensed. There is something in us that rejects the idea that the road just stops. We feel like we were made for more. More conversations. More laughter. More breaths to take. More miles to walk along the trail. And that's why we shed tears when the more is gobbled up. No more. We try to dull the pain by calling it the circle of life. We try to dull the pain by calling our funeral celebrations celebrations of life. It's right to draw attention to what was, but what about what we can't have? What about what was lost? Can't we be honest? Death sucks. It is horrible, and we are helpless against it. 
Which is why the folks on the top of Isaiah's mountain are going bananas. Because someone has done what we could not do. And so you throw your attention to the, the one throwing the feast. In the text he's called the Lord Almighty. And in verse 6, 7, 8, and 9, he is the one who does absolutely everything. The feast isn't being thrown, in other words, because we've done something awesome. Good job, guys. You conquered death. At least what you could do is, you know, I could throw you this party. No, he's saying, I've set this table for you. I've done it all. Come and celebrate. The people are devouring the richest foods, but it says that God is gulping down death swallowing it up forever. And how does he accomplish this? Well, when Paul preaches the Easter sermon to end all Easter sermons in 1 Corinthians 15, it is this vision from Isaiah that resonated in his heart. It was the language and imagery of this vision that he uses to describe the results of of Christ's resurrection and what it accomplished on Easter morning. See if you can hear the echoes. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all of the people most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, The first fruits have fallen, who have fallen asleep. We have hope. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Then shall come past the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul looks back and thinks about the significance of the resurrection in Easter morning, he thinks about Isaiah 25. He says, this is where the shroud of sorrow begins to unravel. This is where death is swallowed up. This is the event that sets God's people up on a trajectory that leads to this mountaintop party, deeply celebrating the fact that all tears have been undone. What Paul says is that the penalty of sin has been paid. And the reason we know that is because of the resurrection. The story of the gospel is that God sent his son because he loved you and me so much. And he sent him to live a perfect life for us and to die the death that we deserve to die. And so when he was wrapped in a linen shroud after his death, we're to imagine that those were our grave clothes. And when the women and the men enter the tomb, you know what they see? 
they see those linen shrouds folded neatly and set to the side because there's no need for them anymore. It's the receipt on the cross. It worked. And it's not just that the penalty for our sins were paid. It's it's that the power of death was broken. Because the promise of Easter is that what happened to Jesus will happen to us. It's like the greatest preview of a movie you've ever seen. Because you're seeing your own future. It's about Jesus' resurrection is as, as much as it is a vindication of his life and his sacrifice, it's a preview of our future. Romans 6, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Death seems so final, doesn't it? But what this shows us is that death doesn't have the last word. Life has the last word. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. What are the first fruits? Well, it's the first thing out of the garden. It's the first fruit off the vine. It's the first apple off the tree. It is the proof and quality of the coming harvest. In the first fruits, you have an actual taste of your future. And in the scriptures, we're told that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. That is, that he is the first breaker in a coming tidal wave of immortality. That Jesus is the first fruits of a massive harvest, which is a deathless kind of life. And it all happens in order. It comes in stages. First Christ was raised. And the power of the future breaks into the world. Into our hearts. And one day Christ will come again. And all who belong to him. Will rise. That's why Paul taunts death. Where's your victory? Where's your sting? The lower you raise, the lower you take me, the higher he'll raise me. The power of sin has been broken. And so for those who belong to Christ, death is the is but the dark door to the banquet hall of Isaiah 25. Three things about that vision and then we're done and you eat your ham. First is the earthiness of the vision. Feasting, wine, no Aldi hot dogs, all of the good stuff. It's saying that your future is not ethereal on your cloud mobile with your harp. You get the good stuff. You don't just get consoled for your sorrow. You get the good stuff. It's mysterious. No one knows what this is going to be like. It's using metaphor and image to say you get the good stuff. Life back. Life to the full. 
And notice it is not a solitary vision. You are not alone. You're at a feast with people. And I want you to think about the the guest list. All of the people that you long to be united with. Who are they? What are their names? You long to see them again. Gathered around an eternally long table. And here's how I picture it. At the feast, someone stands up at this eternally long table. I want you to imagine it's you. And you raise a glass. And you say, let's toast the one who's responsible for us being here. And everyone lifts up their glass. And turns their head. And sees the one at the head of the table. And it's Jesus. And to use the language of Revelation 5. It's like a lamb who was slain. Alive standing there. Glass raised. In the center of the heavens. In a throne surrounded by God's people and 10,000 angels. Every creature on earth and under heaven. All of God's people, all the creatures, all the angels raise their glasses in song and say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. Let us be glad in His salvation. The last image is of him wiping away our tears. Such a powerful image. He didn't have to put it that way. He could have said, I'm coming to end suffering. That would have been true. But he chose to phrase it like this. I am going to wipe all of the tears from your faces. And that's powerful and helpful for me. First, it's just a poignant image because tears sum up everything that's wrong in this cruel world. Grief, frustration, pain, disappointment, loss, stress, tragedy, disaster, regret, mourning, depression, lament, brokenness, abandonment. All of it is expressed in the universal language of tears. What has caused you to cry this year? But it also speaks of God's love, his tenderness, because it's intimate, it's personal, it's relational, it's what a father does to a child, it's what a lover does to a spouse, it's what a brother does to a brother, it's what a friend does to a friend. And I just think about all the tears we've shed this year, tears over infertility and miscarriage, Tears over the diagnosis we've received. Tears as we've watched our children's bodies suffer. Tears over the shame we've experienced. Tears over our pride and shame and sin. Tears over our addiction and deceit. Tears over our unbelief and exhaustion. Tears of weariness. Tears of grief. Tears regarding discouragement. Tears of divorce. Tears of death. Some of you have buried a loved one this year. And this weekend you have set flowers by their grave. All of these tears gathered up in the world. And yet, you are gathered here. 
not to bear witness to the power of tears, but to bear witness to the day when one day you will meet your Savior and he will wipe the tears from your faces. And that seems like a a long ways away, but Easter is like a star far away giving hope, but its light is still shining on us. And so we may be staring death in the face, but we can have peace and joy. Not because it isn't that, because it isn't that bad, and not because life was good while it lasted, but because of Jesus, a grounded hope. Jesus, who is not an idea. Jesus, who is not a distant notion. Jesus, who is not a poetic idea. Jesus, who is not your teacher. Jesus, who is not your authentic self. Jesus, who is the first and the last and the living one who has risen from the grave and he holds the keys to death in Hades. And I want you to listen to his voice ringing out sonorous with light, beyond all the grays of the world, saying, I have come to make all things new. Let me pray. What do you say, Jesus? host of the great feast who calls upon our hearts and souls today to arise and stand and toast and celebrate. There are still so many tears, so much hurt and so much grief, but today we let that distant star shine and in its light we hope We take courage. We sing. Some of us defiantly against the griefs of the present moment and we say one day we will rise because he is risen indeed. Thank you for paying the penalty for our sin. Thank you for breaking the power of death forever. We toast you, King and Savior. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right. I left, so I'm going to come down to the table because he's prepared a great table for us. But I have something I want to read beforehand. And you're like, you just talked at us for a long time. And I'm like, I don't care. It's Easter. (laughs) Um, So to prepare our hearts for the table, which today is a table of celebration, I'm going to read some third century preaching from John Christostom. They could, the old timers could preach so well. You know what I mean? This is what he says to end his Easter sermon many moons ago. Let us all enter the joy of the Lord. First and last alike, receive your reward. Rich and poor, rejoice together. Conscientious and lazy, celebrate the day. Those who have kept the fast of Lent, and those who have not, and those who failed Lent terribly. Rejoice this day, the table is bountifully spread. Feast royally, 
the calf is fatted. Let no one go away hungry. Partake all the banquet of faith. Enjoy the bounty of the Lord's goodness. Let no one grieve being poor. The universal reign of Christ has been revealed. Let no one lament persistent failings. For forgiveness has risen from the grave. Let no one fear death. For the death of our Savior has set us free. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To Christ be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. 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 This is a-